This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Nine police officers have died in the line of duty over the past seven months here in Canada, most recently in Edmonton earlier this week as an officer responding to a call was killed in a car accident. One death is one too many. Nine unthinkable. So many questions. Why does this keep happening? Do police need more protection? Should laws be changed to better support our frontline officers? What impact does an officer death have on the women and men who bravely wear the badge, on their families and the community? Here to help us understand what it takes to be a police officer, the risks, the rewards, and the courage needed to work every single day to keep us safe is York Regional Police Chief Jim McSween. Good morning, Ann. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here with you. I am loathe to talk statistics. When it comes to police losing their lives in the line of duty, nine officers in a span of just seven months. But we'd also be remiss if we didn't recognize the death of one of your own, Chief McSween, Travis Gillespie, 38 years old. He died tragically in a car crash on his way to work on September 14th. Yes, and yeah, he he did. Uh, It was a a tragic circumstance. Um, I received the phone call uh, that day, early morning, and uh, obviously, um, you know, what unfolded from there was... uh, was a, a, a tragedy for his family, who I uh, I immediately went to uh, and spoke to his mom. But we miss Travis. Uh, we do uh, what we can at our in our organization and beyond uh, to remember him as well. Although he was not killed in the line of duty, he was killed on the way to work. And uh, any death of a police officer, um, uh, you know, the family still have to be remembered and they still have to pick up the pieces afterwards. So we do our very best to support them, uh, you know, as we move forward. What happens within a force like yours when news surfaces that one of their own, but in a different, uh, obviously, jurisdiction, dies in the line of duty? What kind of effect does that have on a service like York Regional Police? Yeah, I can tell you, Anne, uh, as you probably know, uh, the camaraderie uh, within um, a profession like ours uh, where people, you know, pick up the torch for public safety, um, we all feel it tremendously. Um, you know, I can say, uh, you know, our, our, our partners to the north, when South Simcoe, when the two officers were killed, um, you know, my immediate uh, response was to reach out to the chief and let him know that he had our full support, and we actually supported that organization uh, substantially throughout their ordeal um, and offered services that we have that they may not have in terms of wellness and 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 at least uh, we have a large program to help out in that regard knowing that many of their officers are struggling at the time and and probably still are but i can tell you in our own organization um, there are many friends and relationships that have uh, been built with many of these organizations uh, over many many years so um, when when one is killed no matter what organization they they represent um, it feels like um, we are all suffering the tragedy uh, of that event. And in many cases, I will send officers um, to, or in some cases myself, attend those um, those funerals to pay our respects to people who have, as I mentioned, um, picked up the cause for, for um, to do what many people um, 
either aren't equipped to do or um, um, don't have the moral strength to want to to want to do. Um, these are difficult jobs and jobs that uh, are not for everyone. Um, but all of these people had um, had had chosen a career, and it's extremely important for us to pay our respects. Do you think that police need better protection? Uh, well, you know, I guess I can answer that a couple of ways. Uh, I would say, and I'll just talk about York Region for a minute. Our officers are very highly—they're they're highly trained. They have a lot of the tools and uh, um, and the appropriate commi- um, equipment to do the job that we um, and the and discharge the duties that they're empowered to discharge. What I would say, though, there there are there are supports required in terms of. Um, you know, and I'll just talk about bail reform for a minute. And, and uh, you know, when officers, uh, when we hear of officers that have been killed in the line of duty by people who, you know, and, and just talking about it straight up, should absolutely not be out in the community free uh, and, and, and have the availability of the weapons that we're finding day in and day out on the streets and take the life of an officer. Um, there's changes needed. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, in one in one case, we do a very good job with our officers and with the tools that we're able to provide to them and, and the training and guidance and, and coaching along the way. But, uh, you know, that has to be supported by a judicial process and system that uh, on the back end of, uh, of you know, how these, these issues unfold has to support public safety, uh, the greater good. And so our officers, um, you know, in some cases have suffered the fate of having people on the streets who, in my view, should never have been out. And But, but it's not just police that have suffered. It's many, many other members in the community have as well, um, regular citizens um, whose lives have been taken by those who um, are out, um, you know, free in, in society and, and uh, with a history of uh, violent repeat offenses and uh, gun crimes. Uh, Chief McSween, in some cases, those who have died in the past seven months, who've been killed in the past seven months, they didn't even have a chance to draw their weapons. They were ambushed. Does there need to be a change in protocol when it comes to going to a scene where you're not exactly sure what you're going into? Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to say a change in protocol in many cases. And, and uh, you know, officers are responding to calls that wouldn't dictate any, any other type of response, and yet they're ambushed and uh, killed without even having an opportunity to respond. So um, each scenario, each situation has to be dealt with on its own merit. Um, you, you know, so, th- so those things are, are, are difficult to know if there could be changes made that would have changed the outcome. Um, knowing uh, in some of these circumstances, some of the details, I would suggest that uh, there's nothing more could have been done um, with the exception of uh, if there was any history on the person who, uh, who committed the crime. And in some cases, uh, we may, may not have had that information at hand. So, you know, it's, it's just hard to say, but, um, you know, so I'll give you an example. I mean, if somebody, if somebody calls the police and, and, and said uh, they're calling for a barking dog and the officer walks up and they're ambushed and killed, I'm not so sure the response would have been ever any different on a barking dog complaint. Um, but uh, that's just an example of, of something that, you know, heaven forbid, we never want to happen, but could happen. 
And, you know, gun control, that's a topic that we we, we discuss d- almost daily in this country, and certainly we watch what's happening in the U.S. Is there any sense in, in tightening gun control laws, gun laws in this country? Would that make any difference, do you think, in terms of what police are responding to? Yeah, I think it would make a difference. I think uh, the laws are there. I think that the, the challenges are, um, you know, how are we how are we approaching? So, so first off, when you talk about sentencing uh, for gun crimes, there needs to be tightening up on on appropriate sentencing for people who are repeat offenders, violent repeat offenders in the community. When they're sentenced, there needs to be some substantial jail time uh, to keep those people off the streets. They've already it's their behavior that has demonstrated the need to keep them in custody. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, these are adults. These are people who make a choice, and uh, uh, you know that the the outcome of their actions should dictate uh, the outcome of what occurs in court or or beyond. Um, so, so I do think in 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 that relation, yes, there should be some sentencing guidelines and uh, harsher sentences for people who have been convicted of gun crimes. And I think on the bail side, um, there needs to be some substantial changes to uh, those that have been, uh, you know would be classified as violent repeat offenders or people who have repeatedly committed or, or been dealing with guns, uh, whether they've discharged them in the community or they've used them to commit other types of crimes. Um, you know, our, our recommendation is that that become a reverse onus. So therefore, uh, you know, a Crown attorney is not arguing why they should keep them in. Um, the accused themselves is arguing why they should be let out. Um, put the onus on the person who's uh, behavior has placed them before the courts and not the judicial process or the crowns themselves just to try and argue as to why they should be held in just just things like that would go a long way to assisting in keeping the people we're talking about a narrow lane a narrow margin of people we're talking about violent repeat offenders and those committing uh, gun crimes keep those people off the streets that would be a substantial uh, move forward to uh, doing what I think we're all supposed to be doing, which is keeping the community safe and having people feel like they can walk um, in the city and in the greater Toronto area safe from these types of violent offenders. Nine Canadian police officers died. They were killed while they were doing their jobs. We remember them, we honour them, we think of their many contributions and the huge loss felt by their families and fellow officers. Chief, can lessons be learned so that their deaths are not in vain? Absolutely. I think uh, what can and and will eventually be done is uh, a deep dive into each of those uh, circumstances to do a better job of um, researching uh, the details throughout each, each of the incidents to make sure as a police service and as a community and, uh, you know, from uh, provincial and government, uh, federal government officials, that all of those uh, statistics and details and facts are brought to bear so we can do a much better analysis of what needs to be done to keep our officers safe so they can do what we've empowered them to do, which is to, uh, to keep the community safe. Chief McSween, why does someone become a police officer? You know, it's uh, it's it's uh, interesting because it hasn't changed in the many many years since I've been here. I've been here 34 years now, and I can tell you when I talk to our recruit classes and I ask, you know, why did you why did you decide to be a police officer? 
in many cases, the answer is quite simple. I, I want to help the community. Um, it starts that way and it becomes, uh, they become more and more entrenched in the idea that we are serving something greater than ourselves. We are picking up the torch for public safety and serving uh, something, a cause. And, and the cause is we're, on the, we're all on the right side of the law. And what we're trying to do is make sure that others stay there as well and remain there and serve, you know, people who, in some cases, aren't, aren't able to support themselves. Vulnerable people in our society are, are seniors and our young people who, you know, need a, need a hand. And, and in many cases, um, our officers realize as much as it starts out with, I wanted to help, help becomes, uh, uh, you know, it expands beyond uh, decades of policing experience and careers that they've all um, uh, been here with YRP for and realize that there's much more to it uh, than just to help. Um, but it starts that way, and they realize the impact each and every one of them as individual people can have on people's lives, victims in the community, and, uh, you know, of, of which we don't talk enough about. We talk way too much about uh, the accused, and we talk far too little for, uh, about victims. But really, that's what, uh, what our officers come to realize. And, uh, but it always starts out the same way, to, to, to help. How important are families when it comes to police officers? Uh, families are the backbone of each of these officers. Uh, you know, at every recruit ceremony, uh, one of the first things I do is thank the families um, for supporting our officers, for uh, being there when uh, when we aren't there because, you know, they work shift work and, and they go home and they have stories to tell and they have uh, uh, the impact of the job uh, and it does have an impact on them. So I thank the families immensely for the work they do because you know we are just there a larger version of their family it's the police family but uh, it's important to recognize that um, these people have given their they sacrifice as well and they sacrifice time a time away from birthdays and, and missed anniversaries and all kinds of events because these officers are doing what they have to do to be here to, to protect what is uh, something as I mentioned, greater than themselves, something that the, the cause of public safety and community community well-being. So um, they play a, a critical role in uh, the officers' careers as they move through them. York Regional Police Chief Jim McSween, thank you and your officers for keeping York Region safe. Thank you, Anne. We really appreciate the support. York Regional Police have laid charges after suspected hate-motivated incidents at two Markham mosques. Kevin Frankish with the growing community concerns. A week ago Thursday, worshippers at a Markham mosque were shocked when a lone man began harassing them with racial slurs before attempting to run the congregates over with his vehicle. This is just one of many hate-motivated attacks against Islamic Canadians in recent years, and now the Islamic Society has asked for the Ford government to step up and create legislation to combat Islamophobia. Nadia Hassan, who has a PhD in political science and is the chief operating officer of the National Council of Canadian Muslims, joins me right now. Hi, Nadia. Hi, how are you? I am good. That's a pretty tall order. Uh, to ask uh, legisl or creation of legislation to combat Islamophobia. Let, gonna, I, for one second, I'm just going to quickly get reaction, though, to the incident that happened outside the Markham Mosque. What happened? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, um, a man kind of entered the mosque property and with his vehicle tried to uh, run a few congregants over while 
while hurling Islamophobic and racial slurs at them. Uh, it was a very scary moment, and we're very lucky that no further harm was done, uh, largely in part um, because of the very brave actions of the volunteers that were at the mosque that day, as well as congregants themselves. Um, but this is, of course, like part of a, a broader story of rising Islamophobia in this country, and that's where um, the mosques uh, and the National Council of Canadian Muslims calls to action come from. Um, because as you said, you know, we are asking for legislation to combat Islamophobia because uh, this is not an isolated incident. What does that look like? What does this legislation look like? So the legislation that um, uh, the National Council of Canadian Muslims, uh, alongside many, many, many uh, community partners, had asked for in the aftermath of the attack in London, um, where, uh, as you as folks may recall, uh, a number of members of a Muslim family who were just out for an evening stroll were sort of similarly attacked by a vehicle. Um, a man driving a truck ran over them, killing four members of the family in, in one fell swoop. Uh, it was one of the worst tragedies we've seen in this country against the Muslim community. And it wasn't the only one, but it's one of, certainly one of the worst. Um, but in the aftermath of that, we did ask for um, the Ontario government to take action, because as you know, Ontario is home to one of the largest populations of Muslims in Canada. Um, and that also comes with, you know, uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of, I guess, you know, misperceptions of Muslims that lead to things like what we saw on, at the Islamic Society of Markham on Thursday. So what we're asking for is um, what we've called the Our London Family Act, which is a model piece of legislation um, that seeks to address Islamophobia through multiple areas of policy and law. So from like education uh, reform, where we're kind of proactively trying to dispel myths, making sure the schools are safe, that Islam Islamophobia doesn't find a home in our educational system, to like having an anti-Islamophobia strategy provincially that covers various arms of government. It is, it's sad that we have to legislate something like mm -hmm. this. What more can we do proactively, uh, you know, in, in, in teaching our kids and in fact, in teaching ourselves in trying to dispel some myths because essentially people are being led around by the nose, uh, by, by, People who have a you know have a, an agenda, and they they're willing to believe anybody and follow anybody. Who mm -hmm. so what can we do beyond legislation? Oh, there's so much. Uh, I think like number one, uh, when we're talking uh, about issues concerning Islam and Muslims, I think it's really important to actually speak to Muslims and. You know, uh, living in Canada, there's there's a huge Muslim population here. So should it be hard to do to make sure that rather than letting um, sort of um, half-baked ideas about who Muslims are and what they stand for, it's better just to reach out and speak to some of them uh, to really understand who they are and what, uh, what they stand for. Um, the other thing is to, to also remember that there is a a huge diversity of Muslims in Canada from like ethnic diversity to linguistic diversity to like a range of different uh, types of uh, beliefs within the community. So and different practices of, of Islam. So, you know, 
Um, the other thing is uh, really important to do is just not to paint the entire community with one sort of one brush and, and make sure that we're having a nuanced conversations about Canadian Muslims and, and Islam in Canada. In my uh, my appeal view commentary earlier on this week, I, I spoke of the attack and and I said this was not a, an attack just on Muslims. This was an attack on citizens of Markham. And because it was an attack on citizens of Markham, it was an attack on each and every one of us because people were here were being attacked because they were Muslim. Whereas mm-hmm. I could be attacked for being a Christian or I could be attacked for having brown hair. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. It, 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 there's a lot of scapegoating that goes on. How much does the current political climate play into this? When we have the, the extreme right wing uh, of, of, of what we thought were rational people proclaiming that, you know what, we, we, have, to, we have to stop the Muslims. How much of, of this political atmosphere plays into this? Uh, I think you're uh, like that's it's a huge part, um, not just the political atmosphere, but also uh, sort of not just the Canadian political atmosphere, but the global uh, um, political atmosphere where we see, for example, in the U.S., we see like a ban on Muslims, um, like the Muslim ban that was implemented by the Trump government um, for people, Muslims traveling to the U.S., so, you know, these are things that are, uh, they're not just fringe anymore. They're not fringe ideas anymore. They're part of mainstream political conversations and are making their way into policy. And a lot of it has to do with post 9-11 anxiety uh, around terrorism, but it's extremely misplaced, um, especially in the context of Muslim communities here in Canada. Give us an idea of persecution that that is suffered by Muslim men, women, and children daily. I don't think we're aware that even though this incident catches headlines, we don't hear about everything. Yeah, I think, you know, um, to give you some some sense of just the scope of the problem, we have, uh, we're a small nonprofit. We have a small uh, legal department that helps um, Muslims across Canada who are facing various forms of Islamophobia, whether it's like a discrimination in employment to a hate crime. And we get nearly seven calls per day um, of people who have experienced something that need our help. So that's, seven, uh, that's and to clarify, that's seven calls of things that have gotten serious enough that someone is seeking yeah. legal help. This doesn't, this doesn't include just, you know, small slur, racial slurs that are, are, are hurled at people daily. Exactly. And and as we know, like Statistics Canada, um, they do collect data on police reported hate crimes. Um, and as we know from that data, there has been a 71% increase in hate crimes against Muslims in Canada, which is simply unacceptable and, and absolutely outrageous. But that number also doesn't even scratch the surface because according to Statistics Canada, two thirds of hate crimes go unreported. So all the racial slurs that you're talking about, um, things that happen like, you know, people just walking down the street and someone tries to rip off your hijab or you're sitting in public transit and someone starts, you know, aggressively ranting at you um, because you're visibly Muslim. Uh, These are experiences that far too many Muslims in Canada have had uh, and that we really need to, to make. We need to make a plan on how to combat this. Yeah. And and I would hope 
that anybody watching that, whether they're, they're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever, would stand up for someone if they see them being, you know, say on the TTC and they're being subjected to, to just, just filth, you know, that we would yeah. all stand up for each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just, uh, you know, a week before Ramadan started, uh, a young woman was on the TTC and she was being followed by this gentleman who was asking her all kinds of questions about her faith because she wore a hijab. Um, and she, you know, in good faith, engaged him in kind of explaining to him what she could about why she wears a hijab. And then at some point in the conversation, he turned to her and pulled out a knife oh. and said to her, um, you know what we do with people like you. Wow. Um, and luckily, she had the instinct to run um, across, I think, something like eight subway cars oh. before she, you know, stopped and a stranger um, helped her and said, you know, what's wrong? Are you OK? And pulled the emergency alarm on on the subway. Um, and that's what kind of led to a, a series of events that eventually led to this man being apprehended. Um, but this is, you know, I mean, I was in, in close contact with the victim and, you know, she was also hesitating to report this because she was like, well, you know, I'm safe, you know, I'm okay now, I just want to put it behind me. And a lot of people have that feeling because it's a lot, it's a lot to deal with to kind of not just move on and, and forget about it, just pretend like it didn't happen. So I bet you there's there's lots of people out there um, who have had experiences like this that simply don't report it. Well, I wish you all the uh, the luck. If people want more information about what you do, what, how, where can they go? They go to www.nccm.ca. Um, we're also on Twitter at nccm and on Instagram at nccm underscore community. All right. Thank you very much for this. Nadia Hassan uh, is the Chief Operating Officer of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Coming up next, the Canadian charities struggling to meet demands. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Toronto is feet first into its mayoral by-election campaign following the shocking resignation of John Tory. Vaughan Mayor Stephen Del Duca has, in my opinion, won up to Canada's largest city with a mayoral contest of his own. Mayor for a day. Joining us with the exciting details, including who is eligible and why this is such a positive learning experience, is the man behind Mayor for a Day, Vaughan's very own municipal leader, Stephen Del Duca. Welcome to the show, Mayor Del Duca. Great to have you with us, and I'm pretty excited about Mayor for a Day. What a cool contest. Well, it's great to be back on with you. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited about it as well. I don't think we've ever done something like this in Bonn before, and I'm really hoping it'll be exciting for the kids who will uh, reach out and apply, and I think we'll have a lot of fun with it. So who is eligible for this? So students uh, between the ages or the grades of uh, 5 to 8 across the city are eligible to apply and to submit uh, the deadline for submissions is May the 2nd, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's mostly about what uh, the primary question that we want them to answer is what they love most about Vaughn, and we're looking for a lot of creative ideas, we're looking for a lot of great suggestions, 
from uh, from the, the, the students who attend schools right across this beautiful city of ours. And for me, as someone who did get involved in politics and government at a very young age, but understands that today we don't have as much, I'll say, sadly, youth participation as I'd like to see, I'm really hoping that it'll actually create some excitement, some buzz, and give students a sense of why it is so important to be involved in public life. And public service, and also engaging in municipal decision-making. That's so important. And why that particular age group? What do you think? Are they more sponge-like? Are they they able to, you know, really absorb everything that's going on and turn that around into something brilliant? Well, we know that, for example, within the curriculum in grade five, there, there, you know, there are civics, if I can put it that way, civics lessons. I've actually received letters from students in grade five at different schools across the city who've written to me about what they like about Vaughn and where they'd like to see improvements. I've really enjoyed writing back individually to those students. So I, I kind of figured, and our team kind of figured, that's, that's a bit of a sweet spot. Yep. People are young enough to have that curiosity. Uh, they probably don't have fully formed ideas just yet about what it means to be involved in government and public service. And so I think it's a really good time to catch them. So tell me what will happen on the big day. I believe it's June the 19th. What will happen to the youngster, <laughs> whoever that will be, who's chosen <laughs> to be mayor for a day? What will he or she be doing? Well, they're going to get a chance to be at City Hall with me. They're going to get a chance to come to the meetings, to participate in what we have happening that day, whether it's the committee or council agenda. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm sure they're going to have a lot of questions for me and possibly for other members of council and our staff at the City of Vaughan, and I think that's great. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because, for me, it's going to be a lot of fun to help somebody uh, kind of broaden their horizons and see uh, all of what, what goes into running a city and being involved in the city and uh, I, I'm really hoping that the successful mayor for a day has a blast and, <laughs> uh, you know, spreads the word to their friends about why this is so important. And, and this is our first time doing it. So I'm really hoping that in years to come, it'll continue to grow and there'll be some really great buzz around it. And what will you tell this person, this young person, uh, about what a typical day is like for the mayor of Vaughn? <laughs> Vaughn is a very busy and active city, and that's great. I, I love it. I think that they're going to get to hear from me and, and probably see firsthand that, you know, in this job, you go from some real incredible highs in terms of being out there in the community, being at lots of different events, representing different neighborhoods, different cultures, different religions, uh, bringing a positive message to the people. They're also, I think, going to learn that we do face at City Council a lot of really tough decisions about how the city is going to grow, how we're going to deal with, for example, traffic and how we're going to deal with you know, creating and maintaining a safe and sustainable environment and how we're going to grow and make housing more affordable, that there's a lot of heavy lifting that we do at the local level that has a direct impact on this individual and their family and their neighborhood. And I hope they're going to get to see and feel what that full experience is like. Something else that a mayor does, and frequently, and you're learning this, uh, maybe the easy way or the hard way, you know, you're pretty pretty experienced when it comes to speaking in front of people, years in politics. You had, I hear, a standing ovation at the end of your speech. You were the keynote speaker at the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce annual mayor's lunch, and it was your first time doing this. You also rolled out your 10-year action plan. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. First of all, full credit uh, to uh, the team at the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce, uh, Jennifer Coletta Rushdie, the new um, confirmed president and CEO and her whole team did a phenomenal job. We had about 
700 people in the room. It was a great turnout. It was nice to see a lot of familiar faces and meet some some new friends. And I did uh, the focus of my remarks was how we're going to deal with getting Vaughn moving or keeping Vaughn moving as it relates to transportation specifically. And I did unveil a 10-year plan. It's pretty ambitious. I feel good about it. I feel optimistic that if we if we work together, as I know the people of Vaughn can, that we will get this accomplished. And it's really going to help whether it's public transit or it's cycling and active transportation or connecting a lot of the east-west major roads that don't currently connect to I think we're going to be able to get this done. And people seem really receptive to my message. And do you, in your heart of hearts, think that you will still be in this position in 10 years? Oh, I don't know that. that <laughs> there's, 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 that'll be up to the people of Vaughn and my beautiful <laughs> wife to decide, uh, you know, in terms of what, uh, how long my role will, uh, how long I'll continue in this role. I know for sure uh, that I'm having fun. And I think, I think it's about laying out a plan and being very open and transparent with the people about what you want to do, why you want to get it done, because, and this is my real message, this isn't about Stephen Del Duca trying to accomplish the 10-year plan. It was, a, it was a call to action to the people and the businesses of our community to ask for their help when they're talking to other levels of government, when they're talking to others in the community, to really harness the incredible potential that we have in the city, which we've done before, and I'm convinced we'll do again, regardless of who's serving as mayor. And one of the downsides of your position, any mayor, you face criticism from time to time. Was there any pushback when it came to your 10-year action plan? No, I think, in fact, as soon as I started to itemize the different projects, uh, there was spontaneous applause in the room. Some of the projects I'm talking about, Anne, like connecting Langstaff over the CN uh, rail yard, uh, between Jane Street and Keel Street. These are things that have been talked about in the city almost as long as I've lived here, 35, 36 years. I don't think we've ever had, uh, I'll say, a mayor, despite all the great progress made, for example, by my predecessor and, and many others, I don't think anyone's ever elevated these specific projects, widening Highway 7 between Kipling and Wigwas, for example, and Woodbridge, connecting Keston between Keel Street and Dufferin and Maple. There's a series of projects that I talked about um, I think, and again, there was spontaneous applause when I started listing them because people know these need to get done. They're just, I think, tired of the talk. So no pushback that day. I think, if anything, people are hoping these things could be done quicker. But as a former transportation minister, I do know, and I stress this in my speech, these these will take time. They're not cheap, and they're not, uh, they are disruptive. So we have to be somewhat patient, but determined to get the job done. And you hit the nail on the head. Let's talk dollars and cents. When it comes to your 10-year action plan, who's paying for it? You know, we are one taxpayer and three levels of government. For sure. So it would depend on which project we're talking about. For example, when we're talking about a regional or a local road, Langstaff is a good example. Uh, Teston's another good example. Highway 7. Those are all regional roads, and I stress that in my remarks as well. I'm aware of the difference between local and regional roads. At the, at the municipal level, you might know and your listeners might know, we do collect development charges to help support the building of critical infrastructure. Uh, some of these projects, or at least aspects of these projects, are already in York Region's 10-year roads plan, uh, so that's good news. But by, uh, by, by elevating them and talking about them specifically, and then, of course, Along with my colleagues speaking with the region and at the region, I'm hoping to accelerate some of the planning so we can get shovels in the ground quicker. That's on the road side. On the public transit side, for example, the Young North subway extension, there's provincial money, there's regional money, and there's federal money in that project, which 
uh, is, uh, you know, the planning for that is well underway and construction is going to begin soon. So it depends on which part of the plan we're talking about. But there is no doubt that if we get this right and we, we fulfill or achieve this 10-year plan, it's going to help our economy. That in turn means, frankly, more productivity, more tax revenue for all levels of government. So it's a sound and responsible investment in our future. Can we get a quick update from you on the Woodbridge Avenue uh, construction? What's going on? I know that it's resumed this month, the month of April, but it's a real challenge for businesses and for citizens, for residents in the area. Yeah, it is for sure. It's been, you know, I, I live not too far away from Woodbridge Avenue. I've, I've been out to visit some of the businesses along with our local councillor, Adriano Volpentesta, from, from that area. And we've certainly heard loudly and clearly about some of the frustration they're feeling. It's not fun for the residents that have to drive through that part of the city. And it also has a negative impact to an extent on nearby neighborhoods and streets because people end up using different routes to get from point A to point B. The good news is the project, which is ultimately going to produce a beautiful streetscape. Uh, while we've you know, upgraded and modernized all the utilities below the ground, um, it's going to ultimately be a beautiful project that is on track and it is on budget. And so that is good news. We expect construction will be completed, and I believe it will be completed by this fall, fall of 2023. And again, the final product will be good for the business owners, certainly good for the residents, and give us a really beautiful streetscape in downtown Woodbridge, Market Lane. Well, thank you so much for all of the updates when it comes to the month of April. What I'm most interested in, and we'll talk about it next month, is mayor for a day. And all of the details have come from you, mayor, for the next slightly less than four years. Stephen Del Duca, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thanks, Anne. I really appreciate it. You take care. You too. Thank you. In a new report, the state of giving in Canada is in dire straits. Tina Cortez now with the key takeaways. The Canada Helps 2023 Giving Report is raising alarms about the state of the charitable sector to break down the findings Duke Chang, president and CEO of Canada Helps. Duke, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me on the program. Let's start with your headline. 57% of Canadian charities are unable to meet the growing demand for services. What types of services are experiencing this increase in demand, and what does that mean to those that rely on those services? Yeah, it's really uh, a stark statistic there. All services across the sectors are are really uh, seeing demand grow. 40% of, of charities reported that they saw higher levels of demand than before the pandemic. And you're right, 57% of them are saying there's so much demand that we can't keep up. And as of last fall, two in every 10 Canadians said they, they would need to receive support from charities to meet the basic needs, such as food and shelter. And are there some charities struggling more than others? Uh, for, for sure. I think all, uh, all charities are struggling from a number of different forces, right? There's, I call it the four forces here. One is the demand force, which, which we just talked about. Mm-hmm. More people needing more things from charities. The second struggle is the revenue struggle. More than 30% of charities are saying they have a significant drop in their revenues, and that's because they're seeing fewer Canadians donate to charities. Only 18% of Canadians are donating to charities according to their tax filings. That's down 11 percentage points from 30 years ago. So in general, we've seen a long-term trend of fewer Canadians giving. The next factor is, of course, inflation. We've all experienced inflation. 
uh, over the course of the last year, charities are not immune from inflation. This means that the cost for their service delivery increases, the cost of their staffing increases. And then finally is the staffing itself. We've seen volunteerism drop during the pandemic. 57% of charities are saying they've had fewer volunteers. And about 75% of them say that they're at the same staffing levels or lower despite increase in demands. Okay, so lots of factors there. Staff burnout, lack of volunteers, rise in demand, stalling revenue, high inflation. So what is the way out of this? Well, I think it's going to be all, it's going to take all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, this charitable sector is so important to Canada. Imagine if it didn't exist, right? Imagine if charities didn't exist. There were people would be that would be without food, without shelter. Uh, that young person who is struggling with mental health might not have a hotline to call into, right? We might have the organizations fighting for for equality and equal rights. So the charitable sector is really important. So it's going to take all of us to support the sector. That means for individual Canadians, it's about finding ways to dig deeper with their generosity. Now, I know not everyone can give financially. Uh, You know, it's been a challenging year for a lot of us financially. But there's ways to give of your time and your talent to express your generosity, right, because we need more volunteers out there. Um, For charities themselves, they need to figure out how to engage with a broad spectrum of of donors across all age spectrums and across the country and thinking about how to encourage people to express their generosity. Certainly, the governments at all levels have an important role to play here to think about how they can support the sector uh, through funds, through infrastructure, through access as they navigate these challenging times. And then I think corporations have an important role to play, too, as they think about how they live their corporate values and how they express those values through their corporate giving. The report also addressed the giving gap. What is that, and and how do you manage it? Yeah, the giving gap uh, continues to widen. Um, Among Canadians, older donors age 55 give at a higher rate than younger donors. Once these older Canadians can no longer give, and if younger Canadians do not increase their giving, this gap will further widen as funding for charities outpaces their need for funds. Do you think that charities need to examine new ways, creative ways, to encourage those who can to donate even more, perhaps, than they have in the past? Yeah, I think they have to find new channels of engagement, especially when it comes to younger generations of donors, right? We know they're online, they're on social media. That's certainly a channel of engagement charities need to consider. I think uh, as a sector as a whole, we need to think about how to express what the money is doing, right? What impact are we having uh, when that money is donated? I think more and more donors are looking for that feedback loop to their generosity to say, hey, that dollar I gave you or that $10 I gave you really made a difference here. And one of the other things that we're trying to do is make sure that donors can find the causes that they care about and find the charities associated with that cause. Duke Chang, if our listeners want more information about The Giving Report 2023, where can they find it? They can go straight to our website, which is www.canadahelps.org to download a free copy of The Giving Report. Thank you for your time today. Next, the top hospitals in Canada, according to Newsweek, Glenn Perkins with the local centre on the list. 
In a survey of the best medical institutions in 28 countries commissioned by Newsweek, Southlake Regional Health Centre came in at number 25 nationally and in the top 10 provincially. To tell us more, we are joined by Dr. Charmaine Van Shake, Southlake's Chief of Staff. Dr. Van Shake, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. Did you know about the Newsweek survey before it was published? I did not know about Newsweek survey before it was published, so I learned about it pretty much at the same time as our community learned about it. When you did learn about the results, that must have been encouraging. Tremendously proud. We've been selected as one of the top 10 hospitals in Ontario um, and within the top 25 in Canada, and that's an incredible performance for us. What are you crediting for the recognition? I think I'm crediting the great care that we provide and the experiences patients are having with us. I mean, it's not something that we um, applied for. It's something that we got nominated for through our peers and ranked through patient experience and patient reporting metrics, quality metrics, and experts that feed into the survey. There have certainly been a few challenges for the healthcare sector during the past couple of years. One, of course, being COVID, the other nursing shortages. How have you been able to navigate a successful path through this period to get you these placings? Yeah, well, it's been really tough, right? I think our staff and all of our employees have worked immensely hard as a team to provide the care that we have, the challenges that we've navigated, and work with those constraints to deliver excellent care to our community. We've developed great safety measures to support our staff and patients and community in the constrained environment that we're delivering care. And, you know, our emergency department is one of the top three in Ontario with achieving access for patients and our ability to see a patient within 45 minutes is outstanding. South Lake has raised its position by three spots compared to last year's results in the world's best hospital ranking. With the proposed construction of a new site for the facility, will that improve your chances of moving up to a higher position? I mean, I'm excited for the proposed construction for a new site. It's not something I'm directly involved in, but our development team Together with government is working forward on that and I'm I look forward to that prospect. Dr. Charmaine Van Shake, Chief of Staff at South Lake Regional Health Centre. Thank you for joining us on the feed. You're very welcome. After the break, under the stars at the Moonlight Gala. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 the region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 the region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming up next month, the annual fundraiser for Canadian art. Jim Lang takes us under the stars in Kleinberg. One of the great events every spring is the Moonlight Gala at the McMichael Gallery. I was lucky enough to attend it last year with my partner, and uh, we've been raving about it ever since and thrilled to be thinking about this upcoming event, Moonlight Gala, for 2023. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Ian Desjardins, the executive director of the world-famous McMichael Canadian Art Collection. Ian, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it really is, a, a, a special night, but the grounds in Kleinberg, um, the McMichael itself, the, the, the greenery, the trees, it's, it is a magical location for something like the Moonlight Gala. Well, we think so. There's no, there's no other gallery like it, I don't think. Certainly in the country, and I would say in the world, funnily enough, it's a very beautiful place. 
Well, and it's it's such a unique way to embrace and enjoy art. It's it's I guess we you know a lot of us view art as sort of a stuffy museum, but this is anything but. It's a great interactive way to enjoy art and realize that as Canadians, we are privy and uh, privileged to have boasted and produced some of the great artists in the last century. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know um, internationally uh, you sometimes have to struggle to get that message across, but I'm delighted to hear it from you. I think the world needs more Canadian art. In the meantime, they can all come to the Michael Moonlight Gala and have a wonderful time. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's a great event. You can get more details on their Twitter feed, at Michael Gallery, and of course on their website to get all the information that you need to be part of it coming up at the end of May. And, and, and Ian, um, it's, fu- it's funny because I remember walking around last year and looking at it, and I'm taking in art without realizing it. I'm enjoying art without realizing it. And I think that's the great beauty of McMichael is you're enjoying everything about it and enjoying art at the same time without even really any effort. Well, that's right. I mean, so much of Canadian art is about the kind of engagement of um, art and nature. And so I think uh, in a funny kind of way, because the the gallery itself looks like this enormous um, log cabin. Yeah. And the art itself (laughs) is surrounded by trees and landscape. It's a a unique scenario, it really is. Beside what you do and what your staff does, how can we as a society do better to promote Canadian art? Well, we're doing our, our very best, but I mean, really, we need people to actually go to exhibitions. And what we've done over the last few years is we've um, packaged all of the very best exhibitions we do, and we do the best in the country. And they now tour. So there are 12 major exhibitions touring the country as we speak. And another major exhibition of Indigenous art, because we have a third of our collection is Indigenous, is touring the States this summer so um you know we're out there and what you can do is visit uh there'll be an exhibition opening near anyone basically in canada over the next year and a half so that's that's the way to support us but in kleinberg itself why not become a member you know why not come to the moonlight gala why not just visit and bring your friends I couldn't agree more. One of the exhibits you have there, Ian, which I'm fascinated because I'm a history buff, is a history of uh, Jewish Canadians coming to Canada in the turn of the century, settling here, and their impact in the country. And stuff like that, you realize the struggles, what they had to go through to come here, and it's the story's told through art. And I think that's an amazing way to tell the story. Absolutely. I mean, that is a unique... We've just acquired that um, the last few months. It's by William Kurelik and... Uh, he was a Ukrainian um, Canadian artist um, who did the series, and he was deeply religious, but Roman Catholic, interestingly, and he did it as a as a tribute to his employer, Av Isaacs, who who was Jewish, and he did other series like that about the Polish immigrants as well. Um, it's a re- it's a remarkable thing, you know. It tells such wonderful stories um, about the Jewish community, and it's based on old photographs and, and knowledge derived from talking to Av Isaac. So um, it's a wonderful experience. All the frames he designed and made himself, which I, I detail I love. Oh, wow. 
I'm thrilled to be speaking to Ian Desjardins, the executive director of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, looking ahead to their Moonlight Gala for 2023, Saturday, May 27th, at the beautiful Michael Gallery. It's one of the great events. If you ever get a chance to check it out, please check it out. They have the Earl of Bridge special for tickets up until the 16th, until the evening of the 16th, and it's a chance to be part of something very special. And enjoy, as Ian said, the art of Canada and uh, the story that we tell, current art, past art. Uh, and there's a lot of artists, I think a lot of Canadians would be surprised to learn that they're from our own backyard. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, the thing about uh, McMichael is that it's often associated with the Group of Seven, and we love the Group of Seven, but actually it covers the whole of the art of Canada right up to the present day. And so there are exhibitions like uh, coming up, The Uses of Enchantment, which I'm particularly looking forward to, which uh, uh, looks at art and environmentalism, the way the artists can deal with with a difficult important subject but make it delightful and enchanting uh, and, and thereby more effective so we have all sorts of uh, exhibitions like that in fact the the gala itself is is kind of dedicated to um sustainability this year it's the kind of overarching theme of it and as you know um you you talked about the wonderful landscape we're in um that landscape is affected by climate change as well and so you know we have to have plans to deal with that going forward. Um, it, it's not just historic. It's about the present day. It, it, it's about Canada. It's about what being Canadian actually is. Absolutely. You can get your early bird tickets by the evening of Sunday, the 16th, and that includes a free one-year McMichael membership and stuff that happens at McMichael. They have art classes on Saturday. They have home sweet home. There's so much that McMichael has more than just looking at art. It, it, it's interactive. It's engagement. It's basically you. It's There is a bit of a hands-on to the McMichael that most people wouldn't associate with an art gallery. No, I know. Well, we do so much education. You know, we have wonderful education programs, you know, both for adults and for lots of of children. It's one of the things I enjoy most, um, going into the gallery and having to pick my way through classes of five-year-olds sitting on the floor (laughs) looking at at Lauren Harris. It's a very charming sight, but they're learning and engaging uh, really early on, and hopefully they bring their parents back with them. Well, and that's—I guess—that's part of it, Ian. We assume that all oh, these young people—they just want computers. No, if they're—if they're, if they're, I guess, uh, introduced to the art, and art is shown to them at a young age, they'll learn an appreciation that could last them a lifetime. That's right, and they learn many other things too. I mean, our our programs are kind of groundbreaking in in that we often use um, we 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 have indigenous artists leading them, and many of our programs are based out in the landscape as well. So you're learning about. Um, you know, uh, indigenous plants and, uh, you know, there, there are ceremonials and all sorts of things. So it's very broad and, and engaging and, and up to the minute. All these important issues that we're all concerned with today, uh, we deal with most of them as well. So go to McMichael.com to get your tickets to the 2023 Moonlight Gala. It is a fabulous event, Saturday, May 27th. I cannot recommend it highly enough. A, for it's a great night out, but B, to support the McMichael right here in Kleinberg, right here in New York Region, world-class art. It doesn't get better than that. Ian Desjardins, a real pleasure to speak to you. A continued great work at McMichael. Uh, you make this region, this country, a better place, and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. That's very kind. 
If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.